Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's really awkward to hear Michael uh, introduce me. Uh, it's, like, it's like my younger brother speaking about the stuff in the past, and to see him and David here uh, along with their wives and now their children. I knew them since they were in college. And to know someone for that long and to see where God has brought them brings me such joy and gladness. And uh, it's weird. I want to say that it's the joy of an older brother, not a father. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's such a blessing to be here. I've known many of the staff at this church for many years. And having been part of the Christian Reformed Church and knowing what God has been doing here has been such a rich blessing. And when Mike asked if I could come and, and speak today, it was a great joy and a privilege. Um, I want to bring you God's word today. Uh, it is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, and verses 5 to 7. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you have your digital devices, would you please join with me as we look to God's word from Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. If you would like, it'll be projected over screen for you. This is the reading of God's word. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Amen. It's a passage that perhaps you might have been familiar with. Some people have committed it to memory. And for my home uh, and my family, uh, it is our family verse. It is something that my wife Jennifer and I have turned to many a times. In our 19 years of marriage, we have had to make many decisions. We have overcome many hurdles. And really, it is our way of remembering that we're not in charge. There are times when you and I go through moments of confusion. There are times when you need to make important decisions. And during that time, I know that we turn to God in prayer. But here, the call that we find in the wisdom passage here is much more than just simply a moment of looking to God. That there is a context that is given here that the book of Proverbs is a wisdom literature for this side of eternity. That God's word gives us wisdom and understanding that we might have length of days and have peace in our life. This is how chapter 3 begins with an understanding of the importance of wisdom, God's wisdom. And as we follow and listen to God's word and his teaching, we are promised that there will be a potential longer years of life with peace in our hearts. And today as we look at this passage, the passage speaks about trusting, trusting in the Lord. But I've entitled it, The Wisdom of Surrender. These two thoughts come together, and I want us to understand that trust and surrender go hand in hand, much like the very truth of God's authority and our obedience. It is the truth that on the flip side has a response. That if we trust him with all our heart, that we begin to understand and discover that there's a calling to surrender control and authority. For many years, it has been a challenge for me to really think about what this means. And so this morning, I have three truths regarding trusting and therefore surrendering. And uh, I want us to think about this as we unpack this passage together. The I'm just going to give you a first summary of what we're talking about. First is the understanding that surrender makes sense every time before an almighty, all-loving, and all-knowing God. That secondly, surrender is not the giving up of freedom, but it is actually to attain it. 
And then thirdly, that surrender is the natural application of trust, that we want to understand these things together. Let's look at the first truth of trusting and therefore surrendering. The first truth that I want us to see together is that surrender makes sense every time before an almighty, all-loving, and all-knowing God. In verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean, do not trust in your own understanding. The call to trust the Lord has this context of not just trust in the Lord, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. And as As you read that, the implication is that there possibly are times when we don't trust God with all our heart. Perhaps when we partially trust Him and partially trust ourselves, or maybe just simply that we want to trust in ourselves a lot of times and give lip service to God. There are a lot of times when um, the circumstances are so dire that it's almost like a last resort to trust God, but really... The call here is not to look at God as a last resort after you've wasted and tried everything. Well, then let's just pray. That's not it. It is to begin with the understanding that there is one who loves, one who is all-powerful, one who knows, and therefore we turn to him, not to our own ingenuity or power, but to the one who does understand and see and love. Trust is a firm belief in the reliability or the trustworthiness of the object of our belief or trust. And trust is a a significant way that we express an appreciation for who God is. A lot of times when I think about the greatest words of flattery to God, I used to think it was love. God, I love you. And when you hear someone say, I love you, it sounds really good. It makes you feel good. But I want you to understand the greatest compliment to God is not, I love you, but I trust you. And I learned this when I was listening to a message once when it was, this line was said and it just captivated my heart. And the line basically says, you will not always, you will always, uh, no, I'm going to, messing this up. Okay? <laughs> you can love a fool, but you will not trust a fool. You can love someone who's foolish. You can love someone who falls short but you will not trust that person. To say that I trust you is a tremendous compliment. That is why in the book of Hebrews, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's, a, there's this correlation of trusting him that brings him pleasure. And so as we come to God and we try to trust him, whatever that means, we, we'll, um, we'll keep unpacking this. I want us to begin by, first of all, remembering together in whom we are placing our trust. Who is this God? I want us to first remember that God describes himself in these qualities that are worthy of our trust. First, that God is almighty, that he is omnipotent. And that in Genesis 17.1, the Lord says of himself, he says, I am God almighty, walk before me and be blameless. This name of God is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And if you've ever understood who you're crying out to and who you're pleading your request to, I want you to understand that this God that we're calling out, his name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. The second is that God is also all-knowing. He's omniscient. 
that in Psalm 139, this is how Psalm 139 begins. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. And before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And continuing throughout this psalm, the psalmist describes this God who is truly not only all-knowing but present with him. And there is this beauty of knowing that God is not just a God who sometimes is in heaven and as we ask him things, God is not shrugging his shoulders going, well, I didn't know that was going to happen. And it's not a God who sits there and says, well, I want to help you, but I just couldn't. And I don't know if you've ever had images of God. Why, why didn't God do something or something that you and I wanted? But I want to assure you today that as we read Scripture and read about his self-revelation, something that we cannot know without God revealing it to us, he says that he is almighty that he's all-knowing, and thirdly, that God is all-loving. God is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. In fact, the passage that you and I and, and children memorize, for God so loved the world, it wasn't a statement of I love you. It was a demonstration of I love you. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. He didn't speak from heaven just saying, I love you, but he demonstrated by the sending of his son. In fact, we understand that our own salvation in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This love is a demonstrating love. It is something that he continues to show and his greatest demonstration of his love was through his son and through his sacrifice. And so if God is almighty and if God is all-knowing, and if God truly loves us, then our only sensible response to this God would be to trust him with all our heart. He is worthy of our trust. In a commentary by Derek Kidner in the book of Proverbs, he writes about the definition of this word trust, that the Hebrew original thought had the idea of lying helplessly facing downward. That this idea of trust had implications of what it means to surrender. If you've ever been in a situation where you need, you're, you're, you're called to be in a helpless position, there are postures in prayer, for example, where we are sitting instead of standing. Standing, you're ready to defend yourself. Sitting, you're a little bit helpless. Kneeling, you're even more helpless. But the most helpless posture to be in is when you're prostrate face down. It's why the police in the most dangerous situations will tell the person who is uh, being pursued to lie face down with their hands behind their back. This is the most helpless position you can be in, and this prostrate position has an implication, a picture, as we will look at the word trust. Trust in the Lord. In this, we also understand that trusting God in this posture will reflect a heart of humility. It's an understanding that we are limited, and he isn't. That we don't know all things, but he does. And that as we come before God and trust him, and as we lay ourselves before the Almighty, that we are not leaning on our own understanding. This, is, this leaning is meaning, it, it's not inclining against something. It's not, it's not me leaning against something. It's actually what I look to support me. 
And so do not look to support yourself, but, let, but trust in the Lord and let him support you. And there are times when trusting in the Lord sounds like a great idea. It's great and easy to say when things are going well. But when you face a really hard time in life, when you're up against a wall and you need an answer quickly, you're not sure because they can either both look good or it's just a very difficult situation that you wish would go away. If you're like me, there are times when I've thought, as I've read the scripture, that I remember as you guys are studying in the book of Exodus, what a great story of God's deliverance of God's people from Egyptian captivity. The Exodus story is an amazing story. It parallels God's redemptive plan and salvation in Christ. And yet, it seems so long ago. Or maybe even David standing before Goliath. And you hear the story of the victory and the imagery of what David represents to God's people. Or maybe perhaps you read about the flood and Noah's family being redeemed from the catastrophe that would wipe out humanity. And then ultimately, perhaps you read about even the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us. But that all seems so far away and so long ago. What comes to us every moment when we are facing a moment of trusting God is that we are asking ourselves, is God truly trustworthy? Does he really deserve all of my trust? Can I make my request before him? Can I let him know my heart's burden? And then can I rest at peace, knowing that he is powerful, he knows all things, and he loves me with an everlasting love? I want to say to you, this has been a journey of mine for the past 30 years. It is something that I've wrestled with God continually over and over again, having to learn and be reminded of how trustworthy God is. But this morning, I want you to think with me. When you, whatever you're facing in life, if you're a young person and you're thinking about your college or your graduate school, or maybe you're thinking about marriage, or maybe you just got married and you're thinking about having a family, maybe you have family and, you're ha- and you have children, and now you're thinking about next steps and all the things that are coming down the pike, and as you are praying over these things, there tends to be an anxiety that we hold on to. And we know that when we pray, That anxiety is supposed to be given to the Lord, but every time I pray, I have to be honest, there are times when I walk away from prayer and that anxiety is still with me. And if you understand and relate to that, can you say amen? Yeah. And that's really peculiar and that's troublesome because we want to trust him, so why is it so hard? I thought about this and there are four reasons why I thought about why it's so hard to trust him with all our heart. The first one I thought about is it's because it's my will versus his will. The desire need to be in control. The condition of the fall ever since Genesis 3 is that we want to be the God of our own life. We've, we've supplanted God's authority in our life and replaced it with our own. And therefore, surrendering my will to his is only possible by faith in Jesus Christ, who has revealed himself to us and who God is through the revelation of Scripture, as well as through the very person of His Son, Christ our Lord. And therefore, to submit to His will and to humble myself before Him, before the Almighty, before the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, is a challenge, which means it brings me back to my sinful tendencies of, of the need to be in control 
and to me to be the little G God of my life. The second reason why it's hard to trust the Lord is because I'm afraid of the unknown. You know, as I was preparing this message several weeks ago, um, I happened to have a conversation with a group of people, and there was a mother of, a, of young children there, and I was just, we were talking about something, and it came back to trusting God. And I said, why do you think it's so hard to trust God? And you know what she said? She said this. She said, it's because I'm afraid of the unknown. And I said, oh, my God. I was laughing because I was one of the things that I wrote down. And I was like, yes, I totally agree. Because I don't know what tomorrow holds. And it brings anxiety to my heart. It's natural. Why? Because I was, I was not created. You and I were not created to know what tomorrow holds. You and I were created to have a fellowship with the one who does know what tomorrow holds. And that when that was broken, that anxiety became a part of our daily reality. But then now this reconciled relationship with the one who does know what tomorrow holds... It's supposed to bring us peace, not more anxiety. And therefore, to trust him means that now I want to release this anxiety of not knowing what tomorrow holds, but that fear still remains. We weren't created to live in the stress and in the anxiety of not knowing things because we weren't supposed to be that person. God is. The third reason why it's so hard to trust in the Lord with all of my heart is because I'm a sensual being. And what I mean by that is I'm used to living in the five senses of smell, taste, touch, hear, and sight. This is something that we live in every day. But as we become believers, another sense has been given life. It is our soul. Our soul has been awakened to the true and living God. We're able to fellowship with someone who is not physically tangible or audible it to our ears. And you and I have now been given the privilege to interact with him in worship and in daily prayer. To read God's word and not just read words on a page, but to then know that there is someone who is speaking to you through his spirit. And so this ability, this awareness, this life that was given to us, this sixth sense of the believer is to be able to live in the realm of the unseen. Because trust is the ability to be able to have an assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of things unseen. To live in a, in a day-by-day world of faith is a different experience. And for many of us, we live usually according to that which is tangible, but God says we do not live by sight, but by faith. It's not by what you see, but faith is about what you cannot see. In the one whom you cannot touch. There's, there's lots of situations where this passage has challenged me to, re, to really trust in the Lord. And uh, my wife and Jennifer and I have been blessed with two children, Joshua and Elizabeth. Joshua is about to enter his sophomore year in high school. <laughs> for David and for Pastor Michael, um, they were with me during the years when Joshua and Elizabeth were born. But I think they, if they recall, the, the time that I heard from my wife that she was pregnant was a tremendous joy. And just like most parents, when, you, when you're ready for a family and you've been praying for one, to hear that you're about to have a child or, or your wife is which child, it's great news and, and such joy. 
And for the first six weeks of her pregnancy, it was a wonderful time. But after the sixth week, Jennifer started to experience something very different. Some, usually women experience what's called morning sickness. Jennifer experienced something extreme of that, which is called hyperemesis. And hyperemesis means that 0.5%, not even 1%, 0.5% of women have this condition where her hormones are, are extreme and she has morning sickness 24-7. She had, she, imagine that nauseous feeling all day, every day for nine months. She couldn't eat, she couldn't drink, and for the first several months, she, she lost weight. She didn't gain weight. She couldn't eat anything. And so I remember sitting across the table with my mother-in-law, looking at Jennifer and almost yelling at her, you have to eat. And she's crying and she says, I can't, I feel so nauseous. And she's trying to force food down. And she said, even water smelled. And I said, you're crazy. Water doesn't have a smell. And she said, but I could smell water. And I said, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) The months were going by. She wasn't eating. She lost over 25 pounds. She wasn't a heavy woman to begin with. She was skin and bones. And when you're pregnant, you're supposed to gain healthy weight. She was losing what she had. And we knew that we would reach a threshold where if she didn't eat, at some point the baby would no longer have anything else to eat. And I remember one night in my room, I remember crying in tears saying, God, Where are you? How could this be good? Please. And I plead with him. I waved my fists at God. You have to do something. You have to do something. You have to take this away. And I remember in that evening in that dark room as I was crying with tears flowing down my face on behalf of my wife and my unborn child, I said, God, please. And and all I heard back in my heart was, do you trust me? What what do you say to that? I didn't have much to say. And I learned what it means to finally lay it down and say, God, okay, this is in your hands. If you want to know, obviously my son is now in his sophomore year in college, high school. And um, by God's grace, there was a period where she was able to eat for a little while and she did eventually gain some weight. But it was still nauseous. The nausea was still there. And so I knew what name I was going to give my son. I was going to name him Joshua. It is the Hebrew derivative of the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. And Joshua lived because the Lord gave life to him, I believe. You would think my daughter's pregnancy would be easier and better. It was just as bad and even worse. And so we named Elizabeth as the name, My God is an Oath, as his promise continues. I want to tell you, for a, for a man, for a husband, we're fixers. And when I couldn't fix this for my wife, it left me absolutely in despair. And during that moment, I didn't really have much of a choice. But when I looked to God, I realized again this passage, to trust in the Lord with all my heart, leaning not on my own understanding, the things that I can see, But in all my ways that I am going to acknowledge him as I acknowledge who he is and to know him. The fourth reason why it's so hard to trust him is that his good and my good might be different. There are times when God says this is good 
And you're like, really? You got to be kidding. To me, good is a comprehensible idea, but yet I'm limited. I'm finite, and I'm unable to see a bigger picture. God in his goodness has foresight. He has omniscience. He has omnipotence, and he's able to see so much more. And you take, for example, the cross. To the disciples at the time, what was happening to Jesus Christ as he was being beaten and walking that path toward the cross and eventually hanging on the cross was perhaps the most horrible thing that they could have ever witnessed. And it was the most horrible thing that could have happened to their master teacher. And if you were to interview the disciples at that time, they probably would have said, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. But in the grander scheme of God's plan, it was the most beautiful thing. It was the most gracious thing. And today, we're so thankful that what was so horrible those days turns out to be such a beautiful work of God. Our salvation begins with a God who is trustworthy, who is worthy of our trust. That if, we, if he would give his only son, and this is, this is the clincher, this is the anchor I hang on to during the days when I'm struggling. That if God would give his very best in his son Jesus Christ, and he would demonstrate his foresight, his love, and his power to overcome the greatest problem of humanity. It is not cancer, it is not AIDS, it is not heart disease, it is not natural catastrophes, it is sin. Because even if we got rid of all those things, we would still die. And God took care of that through Jesus Christ. And if he loves us and has the foresight to take care of that, will he leave you in emptiness and despair? Or will he not give you all good things through his son? So surrender makes every sense, uh, makes sense every time before an almighty, all-loving, all-knowing God. Secondly, surrender is not giving up of freedom, but to actually attain it. In verse 6, it says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Acknowledge simply is to know. And knowing or knowledge sometimes for us might be information. But here the picture and the word uh, here that's used for acknowledge or know is being aware of and having fellowship with. There is a relational and intimate quality to this knowledge. It is the same word that is used in Hebrew when we talk about sex. Because sex is not just physical, it's knowing someone intimately. And so here the picture of intimacy, of knowing, acknowledging him, is being able to have fellowship with him, to be aware of his presence, his love, and his guidance for you. And so here that as we acknowledge him, that God will make straight our paths. It means that God not only will guide you, but he will take you to his appointed goal. His appointed goal. God doesn't take us to where we want to go. God will take us to where he wants us to go. In Proverbs 16.9, it says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. For God to direct our path seems like maybe we don't have a say. That whatever I plan out, the Lord will direct. He will establish my steps. This feels restrictive. This feels like as if I'm not in control anymore. And the answer is yes and no. You know, the, the debate in theology and in seminary about sovereignty and free will, this is something I don't want to go into, but I want you to understand. I don't necessarily think this is an issue of an either or. It's a, it's a reality of both and. Because you and I make choices every day. We choose. 
It's why God can tell us that this is sin and we need to turn from that because we choose these things. But in the bigger picture, we know that God is sovereign, that he is working out his plan. And how that all comes together, we can ask God when we go to heaven. (laughs) But I'm reminded in Philippians chapter 2, God says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God says, work out your salvation. And then in verse 13, he says, for it is God who works in you. So is it me working out my salvation or is it God working in me? And the answer is yes. So then what is freedom? Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. That is the natural picture we have of freedom. I want the freedom to just do whatever I want. But that's not really a definition. It's the ability to do that which is true to our nature. For example, a cheetah cannot fly. It was made to run, not fly. No matter how much it wants to fly, it will not be able to fly. A fish was not made for land, but for water. And so... Even if the fish wants to be on land, he's not free to be on land. He will die on land. When he's in water and his natural environment and who he is, that's when he is most free. In the same way, a Christian, by virtue of his or her new nature, for the old has gone, behold, the new has come, is no longer in the natural state of sin, but has now been made free in Christ And our natural desire is righteousness. That is why sin no longer is comfortable to us. That is why it is no longer the the plan of God for us to live in stress and anxiety and worry every day. But to learn to live in the freedom of being able to rest in the assurance that he who knows, he who is powerful, he who loves you, will make your path straight. The person we're dealing with is not a lesser or an equal being. He is king. The freedom that you and I are called to experience in Christ is a great joy and comfort of knowing that he who is supposed to be in control actually is in control. That I could rest in his control, under his care, under his guidance. And that one of the ways that we acknowledge him and the primary practice of this is through prayer. The prayer life is something that everyone wishes we did more of. I know I constantly talk to Christians and people who say, man, I wish I just prayed more. But that's a, that, that statement, I mean, we're talking about quantity. How long, how much more can you pray? I'm pretty sure quantity-wise, time-wise, we could pray more. But here what we're talking about is not necessarily just the quantity, but the ability of the heart to be able to let things go in prayer. This is where we struggle with in our daily life the difference between what it means to trust God and then the expediency of doing things by our own will, by our own power, by our own ingenuity, and by our own control. And this is the battle that you will face, that I face every day, of daily remembering that I'm not God, that he is. That I'm not ultimately in full control, he is. There are things that you you and I can do because to surrender to God does not mean that you and I do nothing. It doesn't mean that you sit there and if you're saying, God, where is my Mrs. Wright or Mr. Wright? You're not going to sit there and go, God, just bring her to me. And then you sit there on the couch. That as we do things, why we do it and for whom we do it are brought before God again. As I have this anxiety, as I have this worry about my business, about my future, about my career, about my, my married life, about what things are not going well, that as we lay these things before God, 
that we understand that there is a freedom to know that he who does know is guiding. Ken Sandy, in his book Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict, writes this. He says, Trusting God does not mean believing he will do what you want, but rather believing he will do everything he knows is good. There are a lot of times we're we're looking to God in prayer, and we often make prayer this constraining of wanting God to be my servant. I want God to do my will. Instead of me understanding that in prayer, I realize who's in authority, I rest in that authority, and now I'm free from all the things that worry, anxiety, and all the anxiety, and understand that there is someone who loves me and cares for me, and that I surrender these anxieties to the one who has power, who does know what tomorrow holds, and who cares for me deeply, so that the outcome is not something that is undesirable, but good. And so surrender makes sense every time before an almighty, all-loving, and all-knowing God. Surrender is not the giving up of freedom, but it is actually to attain it, to live free in this nature of trusting God and having a relationship with Him. And that thirdly, surrender is the natural application of trust. In verse 7, it says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And so you and I are left with a choice to trust ourselves, to be wise in our own eyes, or to trust in the Lord, to fear him, to have reverence for the Lord, and to turn away from evil. Now, if, if, if you hear the word evil, maybe many of us would think, well, that's easy. I'm not going to turn toward evil. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not like, yeah, evil, let's go. I mean, most of us probably wouldn't even have a problem with that. But I want you to understand that when we talk about what sin or evil is, by essence, it's not just speaking about immorality or these heinous things that people might do, like murder or relational uh, sins like adultery. But in the moments of life, that true, the, the definition of sin and even what is evil is actually rebellion against God where I take authority and control and do as I please. That in moments of anger... If someone cuts you off or someone says something that's disrespectful or offensive, that we feel justified, that we don't care what God says, even if he says, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. I say, no, I'm not going to wait for you. Vengeance is mine and I will repay in my own time. I will be both judge and executioner. That person wronged me and I'm going to make sure that person knows that that person wronged me. You see, that's evil. That's sin. That's not pleasing to God. That's not his will. In moments of temptation, when we're looking or thinking or craving, gossiping, wishing ill will upon someone, hating another person, there's willful disobedience to parents. If, if you ever had kids, and some, I know some of you don't, but when my children were little, and, and you know, we, think, we, look, we look at little children, we think they're so adorable, and, so, and they, they are adorable. Don't get me wrong, I love kids. But they're also truly a picture of our sinfulness. <laughs> I remember when my son was about two years old, and, I, and you know, he understood yes and no, right? So I said, do not touch that, Joshua. And he's like, do not touch that. And he's looking dead at me, and he's like, and he just goes, and he touches it. I'm just, I'm shocked. I'm like, do you know how bigger I am than you? 
do you know what I can do to you? Do you have no fear? Yes, he had no fear. He didn't know. He did whatever he wanted. Now, I want you to understand that in these moments, we forget who God is. We forget that we're not him, but we want to be. And in the moments where we feel temptation, anger, or even fear, you're about to lose your job. You did lose your job. You're having relational conflict. Marriage wasn't supposed to look like this. It wasn't supposed to feel like this. There's sickness that is told. You know, as a pastor for family ministry, it's amazing how many times I've actually now visited families or even attended funerals of parents. We even have a young lady who's a mother of three boys who currently is battling cancer. And when we, when we get this news, it's such devastating news. And it mo- immediately it, it evokes fear in our heart. And during those moments, we, we almost lose ourselves and forget that there is a God who's actually in control. There's a God who actually has taken care of sin and death. I want you to understand there's nothing wrong with taking initiative or action because faith and trusting God is not absent of actions. It really takes us to where our heart is and whom we are trusting. And if you've ever been devoted in times of prayer, prayer is our primary way of expressing our trust to God and making our request to him. And so here's the kicker in prayer. When we pray, we make our request to God. He said, make your request made known to him. So that with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we're to make our request known to him so that the peace of God would take over the stress, the anxiety of our life, and that he would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. But in in prayer, as we make our request known to him, are we surrendering not just the request, but are we surrendering the outcome of that prayer? Now that's the key. Are you going to be okay with the outcome that God gives? This is my stress. Because what if God's outcome is not what I want? And now I'm battling with God about my will versus his will, his good versus my good, and the unknown of tomorrow. When, you, when you're at that place, I, I hope you remember, if you ever wonder, does God love me? Does God know? Just remember that God, when he called Christ to go to the cross, remember what Jesus prayed the night before his crucifixion? He goes to the garden and he prays, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, not as I will, but as you will. His request was, I don't want to die. Is there any other way you could do this without this path? And the father said, no, there is no other path. You have to drink this cup. But Jesus' surrendered statement is, not as I will, but as you will. May your will be done. I've made my request. My brothers and sisters, 
you can make your request. He calls you to lay your request before him. And then after you make your request, you are then called, as we are called together, to then trust in the Lord with all our heart. That whatever the outcome is happening, whatever it comes, that God is still in control, that God still loves you, that God knew, and this is hard because there are times when you and I will think, this can't possibly be good. But again, there are things that God is doing for his glory and for our good that we cannot always see. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, his beloved servant and missionary, the Apostle Paul, describes his journey of preaching the gospel in this way. 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. That's near-death lashing. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and in danger from thieves and danger from robbers, danger from my own people. And he continues to speak about all that he goes through. And you got to wonder, God, you must have had a better plan than sending Paul out to suffer that much. But in the midst of that suffering, he demonstrated a power of God at work that in his weakness and in all his weaknesses, his grace was sufficient. God taught Paul, it's not by your power. It's by mine. And as you face a world that is fallen, dying, and in sin, you are to be like Jesus, to suffer for his namesake. Could it be possible that a good God would let this premier apostle suffer so much? Could God call a faithful man like Job to go through so much suffering? Could God call his own son, who asked so earnestly, and say, or yes to my, your will be done. I want to leave you with this story, and uh, I hope this helps you when it comes to understanding who God is. Recently, my daughter Elizabeth graduated elementary school, and she got a phone, <laughs> because that's when my son got a phone, so she demanded a phone. So she got a phone. Of course, she's now texting and FaceTiming with her friend, and her friend came over once, and they're doing dance moves because they're going to be in junior high, so they've got to be cool, right? So they videotaped themselves, and they have this group chat with a bunch of, you know, sixth graders before she graduated, boys and girls. And it's so annoying. The, her phone's going off, ding, ding, ding. It's like, hi, hey, what you doing? Hey, emoji, emoji, hey, hi. I'm like, oh, my gosh. There's like 100 messages in like two days, right? It's just crazy. They're just going off. And, I, and then I saw one, one boy asked, because she said, we made a cool video of us dancing. He goes, oh, can I see? Can you send it to me? And I saw that text because we looked through our kids' thing. And I said, oh, heck no. I immediately did the extrapolation of what this means when you share a video of yourself to a boy. Oh, my gosh. So I said, uh, Liz, we need to have a talk. And I said, Liz, listen to me. I know this is fun. I know you want to know what everyone's saying. But I said, group, group text is only important for study groups and for when you're planning a party. And afterwards, you get rid of it. <laughs> so I want you to understand. I want you to get rid of your group text right now. And she's crying. She's like, but I want to know what they're talking about. I'm like, yeah, FOMO is bad. This is not right. You shouldn't live in this anxiety every day. And she's crying. And she's like, Dad, why? Why? Don't, please don't. And I'm like, Liz, does Daddy love you? She said, yes. And she's crying. I said, do you trust Dad? And she said, yes. I said, then get rid of the group text. <laughs> she did. She did. She petitioned to me again if she could have it back. 
But I said, Liz, does daddy love you? Do you trust me? Then be quiet. (laughs) It was hard. My brothers and sisters, it doesn't mean that God says be quiet. But I want you to know there are a lot of things we don't know, we can't see. But know that he loves you and that you can trust him. You You could hand it over to him. And whatever the outcome, he's looking out for your best interest. I hope you believe that. Because he wants to use your life to touch a lot of other people's lives. And sometimes that could mean some hardships. It is this idea with which we come to the conclusion of understanding that what Jesus did didn't seem so good at the time. But when, as we trust the Lord, We're so thankful that we make mistakes. We take back what we pray. We hold on to it. We grip it so tight. But I'm so thankful that every time we fail in this, every time we we take control, every time we don't trust him, there was one who did surrender. There was one who trusted him and gave his life over him so that you and I, every time we fail, we are still covered in the amazing grace and love of God. And this is why we worship him. This is why we follow him. This is why his name is sweet to our lips. And this is the one from whom we make our request. And he knows. He understands. He loves. And he calls us to trust in him with all our heart. Leaning not on our own understanding. That in all our ways that we would acknowledge him. And he will make our straight paths. That we will not be wise in our own eyes. But we will fear the Lord. And we will turn away from evil. This is the will of God honoring to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for the men and women who are here. Thank you for the privilege for us to give your name the due glory and honor and praise. God, as we think about this passage and the wisdom of surrender, I pray that you would help us to understand that as we surrender ourselves to you, we're not surrendering to a God who is impotent. And who doesn't know. We're not surrendering to a God who looks out only for his own interest. But one who does look out for our interest as well. And I pray that if there are some brothers and sisters here today that are struggling. That are holding so tight. Holy Spirit would you remind them that God loved them so much. And that he promised and he is trustworthy of his promises. That as he sent his son so shall he return and deliver us from all evil. And until that day, would you give us the strength to trust in you with all our heart, leaning not on our own understanding. And we pray this in Jesus' name.